Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbbVie company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome to Back to Practice episode. We're glad everybody's tuned in and, and we're excited to have a great conversation uh, this evening with you all. Uh, I am one of the co-chief uh, medical editors of Cataract Neuropractic Surgery today. And uh, along with myself today, I have three really good friends and really respected colleagues. Uh, Mitch Jackson from Jackson Eye in Illinois, uh, Nathan Radcliffe from New York Eye and Ear Infirmary, and Audrey Talley Rostov from Northwest Eye Associates in Seattle. Welcome, friends. Um, so this evening, we're going to talk about kind of an edgy topic a little bit and a, and a very well-discussed topic throughout ophthalmology. And we're going to apply a little bit of concepts of how it relates to what we're doing now in this, uh, I guess you could call it intra-COVID. <laughs> we hear post-COVID a lot, but I have a hard time <laughs> post-COVID many days. Um, so uh, all of us, all ophthalmologists have to co-manage in some capacity. I mean, you work with other doctors. It's just the bottom line. You work with other eye specialists, whether optometrists or ophthalmologists, and you have to interface them and share the care of the patients. Well, some do it more aggressively, some do it less. So everybody has their own feelings about it. Um, but I just want to hear from you guys, prior to, prior to COVID, what, what was the, the atmosphere with the, of your co-management? Mitch, let's just start with you. Well, prior to COVID, I'm going to, just so you know, I'm a primarily a solo practice. I have a, a optometrist full time. I have a fellow and myself. We're primarily a cataract and refractive surgery practice. So um, prior, to, prior to COVID or whatever you want to say, we're primarily about a 30% uh, optometric co-managed practice, both with cataract and our LASIK PRK refractive practice for both uh, procedures. Um, I'm kind of in a suburban slash not quite rural. I was when I started my practice 28 years ago, but it's kind of grown out. Probably did even more co-management early on when we were truly rural. But um, there are some optometrists that actually refer a 30-minute drive for some patients. So it's truly a, tr a good co-manage situation because patients are traveling kind of a long distance for their, you know, complex cataract uh, surgeries or LASIK or what it might be. But, um, you know, we actually try and we do our surgery and, and for the most part, most of our patients get both eyes done. Uh, if it's cataract surgery or bilateral LASIK, uh, if it's cataract surgery, they usually go back anywhere from one week to one month, typically um, after their second eye to the referring optometrist. And LASIK, we usually see them the next day or same day and they'll go back at three weeks to four weeks back to their referring optometrist. All right, thanks, Mitch. Nathan, has historically um, co-management been a big part of your practice? You know, New York's uh, a, a sort of a funny in, environment that makes uh, co-management, fee, fee splitting and things like that a little more challenging. Um, I, I certainly practice uh, in a variety of settings, both in my offices and, uh, you know, taking care of, uh, you know, patients referred from optometry practices every day. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of co-management going on, uh, and it's pretty, um, in, at least in New York, uh, where I'm, I'm in the Bronx and I'm in Manhattan, 
And uh, there's not a tremendous amount of organization. So it's, it's really just individual relationships with referring uh, doctor. Um, and, you know, of course, glaucoma is a little bit more tricky uh, in terms of the post-op management. But uh, I would just say I'm privileged to work with a lot of brave optometrists uh, who are willing to see my glaucoma patients. And it's a benefit to, you know, to the patient um, for all the reasons that Mitch just outlined. Uh, and so I just have a lot of different environments, practices, settings. I myself work in, in three different practices. Um, and uh, so, you know, a lot of patients scattered all over and a lot of people forming one big team to take care of them. Very nice. Now, Audrey, you're in a very busy practice as well. I know uh, co-management is a big part of your practice and, and part of your survival. Yeah, so we have both an integrated uh, practice. We have actually MDOD teams that we have. And so there's one MD who will work. I have two optometrists on my team and we see the patients uh, as a group. Um, a lot of the post-ops are managed in-house, the one days, all my cornea post-ops, uh, and then the one days for my smile and LASIK and cataracts are, are seen in-house by the ODs. Uh, we also have a large network of co-managing ODs uh, in the different area um, around Seattle. We actually have seven different locations and, and four surgery centers, um, but we co-manage literally with hundreds of optometrists. And so we have a very, very large uh, referral co-management network. Uh, we have um, over half of our cataracts are in fact co-managed uh, and go back to the referring uh, ODs at, uh, usually at about a week time. We also are very active with co-management education and so quarterly we do co-management uh, seminars uh, and what I call BCE before the uh, COVID era uh, <laughs> we were uh, in, in back in the good old days uh, we would have um, you know, a nice event at uh, a winery or a brewery, and we'd have, you know, a couple of nights where we'd have one to 200, couple hundred uh, ODs attend our uh, education, um, continuing education seminars. Nice. Well, so, I mean, we're all in the same kind of boat, and I'm very similar to all of you in a kind of a mishmash of all you, your, your styles together. And the bottom line is we're all dependent on, because we're all subspecialists, uh, we're dependent on the flow of patients from general eye care providers to us for these services that we offer them. And when the pandemic hit, obviously we're all out of work, but what I noticed, and I'm curious what you guys noticed, is that when I did start getting back to work, um, the optometrists were not back as fast as I was. Uh, they were either more cautious or their infrastructure, if they worked in a corporate center, would now not allow them to come back. A lot of them are not self-employed like, like we are, so to speak. And they were governed by other bodies that would not let them get back to work. So obviously I noticed uh, a reduction of referrals from optometrists because they just weren't seeing patients. Did you guys notice that as well? Was that a factor? Well, um, Rob, I can so... I found, we had talked about this, you know, as we're coming back, we are getting ready to ramp up our practices. And I kind of felt like I was really slow. We're in Illinois. We really didn't start till June 1st. So we started, so we were kind of late bloomers in terms of just opening my own practice. Um, I had a few 
second eyes that I got to do the very tail end of May for that were canceled in early March. Uh, we we kind of had to close up shop March 16th. March 10th was my last surgery date. And so the ODs kind of like, we rely on a lot of their referrals for cataracts. And so the, the same patients that see them are seeing me and they took a long time to ramp up. So, and they're still ramping up. We're not even back to our normal pre-COVID surgical levels yet in private practice. We're getting busier and we're getting much busier than we were initially. And we're already almost into September going to my busiest quarter of the year. But the, the thing is the ODs were slow to ramp up like you mentioned. And so if they're slow to ramp up, then our referrals were slow to ramp up it's the same. So we're almost parallel from the very get go. They were opening up in June too. Because Illinois kind of had mandated it that way. Some of them stayed open kind of prayerfully to do some glasses and things for really truly necessity. People broke a frame or something, but the medical side of their practices didn't really start up like ours. So it's been kind of a slow ramp up starting to get there, but we kind of parallel in a private practice, the same as our private practice referring ODs. And they do a lot of um, complex glaucoma work and you know, Audrey and Mitch and I, we were a little bit more fractive oriented and it's obviously not as um, urgent a lot of the procedures we do, shall we say. So it was obvious that that was going to build slower because patients as well as doctors were less likely to get back at it. Did you see, did you work right through, did you see general ophthalmologists slow down in referrals of complex cases to you? Uh, glaucoma does not rest. So... <laughs> what happened in your or was there also a slowdown people blew it off and there just wasn't access to ophthalmologists and they couldn't get in to see them and therefore it couldn't get to you what happened and what's happening now you know it's 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 fascinating of course glaucoma doesn't stop and you know i'm in a practice in the bronx where at least i'll see at least five people with a pressure over 40 every day i practice you know and, mm. and as you know you know mm. something happens to that eye within a week at that pressure level and uh, I didn't see anyone for a month. I mean, we were really caught off guard by COVID when it hit New York. And then when I did open back up, the volume still wasn't there. And it got me thinking like, you know, how did I see these patients? Well, the retina doctor was giving their intravitreal injection and they, they discovered a high pressure. Someone went in for new glasses and they were discovered to have high pressure. Um, you know, someone went to their internist with eye pain. Anyway, the whole machinery of medicine, optometry and ophthalmology had slowed so much that even these emergency glaucoma cases just weren't able to present themselves to any of the outlets that would ultimately lead them to come to me. And so uh, I would say only really this week have I felt like the volume of these emergencies. And of course, you know, I saw a good number of patients today and I saw, you know, five or six people with a pressure above 40 um, you know, with an urgent problem, uh, they were all just sort of being missed because the wheel of medicine wasn't turning. Interesting. Audrey, what, what's going on in your community with the optometrists? Are they back to work yet fully or is it partial? Can you tell? Uh, it's interesting. The 
community optometrists are partially back to work. There's some that are, you know, up and running, but there's still a number of them that are not. And one thing that we've found is actually less co-management, meaning that there's a number of ODs because they tend to have smaller offices. Uh, they can't have the volume of patients that they had beforehand. So we are actually co-managing, I mean, in-house, we're managing more than we were beforehand uh, because the ODs say, you know what, until the end of the year, we've had several really large practices that we have co-managed with that are really big referrers. And they just said between now and the rest of the year, we don't want to co-manage the cataracts because we can't handle the volume. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can see how that would be a factor or they just want to limit the amount of people in their office or just see paying patients and let you do that. Um, that's a very good point. And, and a lot of these doctors uh, in the community, they don't want to subject themselves. I, I think age plays into it as well. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but we've had several internal optometrists as well as internal MDs, as well as optometric optometrists, the community. And I don't blame them one bit. They just, they're still not back to work because they're in a high risk demographic, or maybe they, they have a systemic illness that puts them at risk. So I think that's another channel of, of slowdown that we don't have all the providers back to work yet. Very interesting. What about um, in terms of communicating with the ODs? I mean, I'm still trying to get my feet wet, just try to figure out my flow and catch up. And I haven't gotten to the point where I have the luxury of time to start to reach out to my co-managing ODs and have any type of, you know, virtual things like this with them. Are you guys doing any of that yet? Are you reaching out to your ODs? Not about a patient problem, but just a check-in or inviting them into your practice to educate them or thinking about any type of online education, any of that going on yet, Mitch? Yeah, so pre-COVID, we were working on a big program, a big CE program for referring optometrists. Obviously that got put on hold and still on hold um, because we can't have gatherings, obviously. So um, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a really good internal optometrist and she's been going out uh, once a week, she goes out to visit all our referring optometrists to reconnect with them. Um, she was doing that before COVID, but she's gone out to all our network of referring optometrists um, and we're going out and catching up with them and seeing what they're doing, kind of sharing the ideas of what we're doing internally in terms of, you know, protecting our patients and letting them know we're doing the best we can to protect our patients and what the process is with the surgery center and kind of educating them that way on the internal flow for referrals so they feel good about to continue referring patients to us. So that's helped. So I think our, our relationships have continued status quo pre-COVID. Um, I like to get a big, you know, telehealth type, you know, virtual ODCE seminar now because we're going to have to obviously switch gears to do something like that from what we were working on pre-COVID. So that's our next big, big venture going forward. But my internal OD has been a really good help in terms of communicating with our community ODs. Interesting. Um, Nate, are you able to employ telemedicine where maybe pre-COVID you were like, you had a doctor, say it was an ophthalmologist, didn't know what to do, and you just said, send them over. Are you more likely to talk to the ophthalmologist, talk them through the problem, and then maybe 
get on the a, like a FaceTime or telemedicine deal with the doctor or with the patient and avoid a avoid a visit for risk of exposure these days, or do you still feel like you got to get the patient in, and that's just kind of pre-COVID rules? No, I, I, I'm uh, being very flexible. Uh... And, and, you know, a couple of things is one is I'll say pre-COVID, I gave everyone, you know, who could benefit it from my cell phone number. And I told them I'd never pick up the phone, but if you text me, I'll get back to you. And, and that was really handy during COVID because I could just touch base with people and, you know, save them from doing things like coming to see me when they were low risk, just because it was their annual. So that, that, that helped a lot. Lots of just texting. Then the next thing for me uh, were people who were nervous about coming into the city, but who had been traveling from, you know, New Jersey, Westchester, Connecticut. No, no, no. Go see your local doctor. Get me a pressure. Send me a text. Have them call me. You have myself, you know, and a lot of that type of management. Uh, because I don't want, you know, I don't want anyone who's 80 years old and not in a glaucoma crisis to even, you know, take that chance. Even still now, I, I just feel like you know, there's risk. Um, and so I think just the flexibility of the platforms, I didn't do a lot of traditional, um, sitting down and doing televisits where we were billing through our, our EMRs. I had lots of offices that were kind of getting it ramped up and actually the, in a few of my offices, the ODs were doing a lot of televisits. And then if it was anything, you know, that they thought warranted, a, you know, an in office visit, the, the ophthalmologist would do that. You know, we kind of had some different systems going on. Um, but I think just generally some sort of availability and recognition that it doesn't always need to be the glaucoma specialists, you know, doing the exam. We just need information to flow. Yeah, I think that you, I mean, it, it's different than telemedicine of like, you know, a consult with a patient, but it is telemedicine that you are remotely making decisions based on information that's coming in remotely. Yeah. Which is very interested. And I, I think that that's, that trend could continue because it is more efficient whether there's a pandemic or not. You could employ those techniques to make your life and the patient's life easier. I think that's a big advantage of co-management. Audrey, anything um, creative or unusual that or trending that you're doing that's different now or what do you see happening? Uh, what we're doing is we've actually started with virtual um, continuing education. And so actually two nights ago, we had a cataract, refractive cataract surgery uh, webinar um, for the ODs. We had about 120 attending. Uh, right after when we were back to practice, we actually had a back to practice in the COVID era um, pandemic precautions webinar also for our referring optometric network. And so we had, I think, upwards of 60 people attending that one. And we're sending out uh, more, you know, newsletters to them just about different topics and also safe practices uh, and that sort of thing. You know, it's interesting because, uh, as I said, a lot of the ODs in the community are not back up and running and some don't want to co-manage uh, until the end of the year. Um, however, our refractive volume is way up. And so I'm doing a lot of smile, um, you know, some LASIK, other laser vision correction. But it seems that those patients are actually coming in and being referred even more than the cataract surgery patients. Uh, although our volumes are, I'd say about 80% of cataract volume is up. My cornea volume is the same. 
um, as pre-COVID, and uh, but my refractive practice, uh, you know, in terms of laser vision correction and ICLs is way up. It's interesting. Hmm. Interesting. That's that's really good information. Um, you know, there have been. Uh, I had always thought about, you know, doing day zero visits and seeing the patients after cataract surgery, looking at them at the slit lamp or having an optometrist in my practice or another MD look at them and check the pressure and then not doing day one because day one visits in the modern era of cataract surgery, just honestly, they're just, everything looks so good. 99.9% .9 of the time, you just feel like <laughs> watching all these people through your office and tying up patient slots and, and tying up people's time and energy to, to march these people through and wasting their time having to get up and get to the office. They may live far away. So we, we took this opportunity to dabble with, um, you know, remote telemedicine for day one routine, you know, not complex surgeries, but routine cataract surgery. And we're having one of our optometrists uh, do that uh, telemedicine. And it's been, you know, it's been well received. Um, I don't know if that's going to keep up when there's less risk of a patient being, you know, infected or coming in contact with COVID. I certainly think it could. I know several other of our colleagues have done the same thing and other people have been doing it for a long time, some higher volume practices. Any thoughts on some visits, either day, day one or other types of visits that you might be more prone to um, just you know, call the patient or, or have, have somebody on your team or yourself just talk to them on the phone. What do you think, Mitch? So kind of, we, we kind of do a mix of things. So we do have some hybrid visits we're doing. It's not really for post-op visits. We're still seeing our patients on post-op visit day one. Um, we're able to do that. Patients don't mind coming in for that. We're doing on some of our glaucoma patients, for example, not to sidetrack, we do some testing. They come in for testing. They just come in for testing only. They go home and then our internal OD will do hybrid visits with them um, and then review their testing results with them and kind of like what their IOP was. So that's working really good. So that's reducing some of our volume, uh, a patient load in the practice for some of the non-surgical. So that allows us to, to free up some space for more of the surgical stuff that I feel I need to see in-house. So it might be a little different than what you're saying. In terms of our referring optometrists, it's pretty much the same. Not all of them are really doing a lot of telemedicine visits that I'm aware of. Um, and so um, they're pretty much just going back when they were to get their glasses or whatever it might be. So I haven't really, that shift hasn't really happened yet in our in our OD network, but we are in integrating a lot of hybrid visits for some of our other type of exams in the office. Okay. Any other thoughts? You know, I'll just say um, accelerated exams, like, the, you know, in glaucoma, you'll have people getting their pressure checked in their car uh, without entering the <laughs> office, and, and then they just drive away because you know, if you really boil down the purpose of some of these visits, it's just for one variable. Um, and uh, I am a have been a big advocate of the post-op day zero uh, exam um, for, for cataract. And even for glaucoma, you know, you, you'll catch things earlier. Uh, you know, if you give them four hours, then, you know, 24 hours is just an extra 20 hours of high pressure after the FACO. So, um, 
I think that this is, you know, the one silver lining, and, and there aren't a lot, but I look for them with COVID, uh, is that we've had the chance to shake up some of the dogma of, you know, this visit must be on this day. And, you know, <clears throat> uh, you know we just have a little bit more flexibility and more understanding from people that, um, you know, these are extraordinary times. It's reasonable to make rational decisions about when someone shouldn't, you know, or should come in. Um, and that flexibility is appreciated because I, I do feel like there are some unnecessary visits we need to get rid of in all of our practices. And, and that for me is sometimes, you know, glaucoma routine visits, I think are unnecessary. You can see some glaucoma patients once a year. Um, and, and, and so we need to start rethinking a lot of that. I could agree more. Oh, sorry. I've got no. a question for, for those of you who are doing day zero visits. Does the patient go home and come back or in these days of social distancing, how are you accommodating that patient? Like where are they waiting in their car? Do they go out to lunch, but not in a restaurant? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like we, we toyed with the idea and some you know, sometimes we will do a day zero visit kind of almost immediately after cataract surgery, but to wait four hours, I don't know what I would do with the patient. I'm just asking really for information because with our patient flow and, and everything, it with our particular practice, it, it wouldn't work. So I'm just wondering how you do that. Nate, Nate's doing drive-through food with his IOP text now. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll, I'll take a burger with that. I'll take a call latte. I just say we have a lot of really good takeout options in New York. And, yeah, patients are more than happy to take two hours. Good question. Uh, I can tell you what we're doing is, first of all, uh, it's interesting, you know, it, 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 it's, it's caused me actually to do a lot more thorough job of making sure I get all the viscoelastic out of the eye. So I'm like more aware of that now, more than ever. Um, not that I had a lot of pressure sites before, but I just, you know, if I'm going to not be checking the pressure that first day, I want to make sure it's all out. So that's number one. Number two is, is we do check the pressure right after surgery, like within 20 minutes, you know, they get out of the bed, they get the IV out, they get something, you get the pressure. Good idea. So we check right away. And, um, it's very rare that we have a, a pressure once in a while, we can't get it read. Maybe it's a very dense cataract that the tenometer is not reading. And we'll, we'll take a look at the patient, the slit lamp and check it or look at the eye. And, um, and that's what we're doing. And I don't know where the, you know, one hour, two hour, four hour, six hour. I mean, I don't know where those studies are. I don't know what years those were done. Again, it goes back to Nate's comment about just dogma and pragmatism and what we know in real world, what makes sense and what happens. And we just don't see, because we, because when you do a day one pressure, you miss that six hour pressure spike anyways, then while they were at home yeah. having dinner or watching TV at 10 o'clock at night. So you gotta take a step back and look at what you're doing and make sure you're practicing good medicine whether it makes sense in your environment. We've done really well with it. Um, you know, the, it, the extent of it, and here's a question Andre, I wanted to ask you is like, Let's say you get your head around telemedicine for post-op visits. So forget about day one. Let's look at like a three-week post-op for a co-managing OD. And you co-manage with this doctor. Um, you've done well with them for years. They, they're very good. And let's say you did a, a bilateral distance target on a patient. And the patient knows very well that they're just supposed to go to Walgreens and get reading glasses, right? And have good distance vision. 
and can and we know the patients on let's just say Lodamax or a combination uh, triple drug that was compounded that we have that has a really low chance of having a pressure spike and they're not on Durazol something that has a likelihood of a post-optimal high pressure. Um, can that OD do a three-week post-operative visit by telemedicine and say, hey, you know, how's your distance vision? Look across the room. Look across the room. Yeah, I see great out of both eyes. You having any problem? No. Did you get your reading glasses? Yeah, they work fine. Does that constitute co-management? I think that that's fine. Uh, I mean, you know, really, if a patient's going to have a problem, then they're going to show up in your office. Uh, it's going to be rare that there's a major problem that they're not going to want to come in or show up. And especially, I think, at a three-ish week post-op visit where you had a distance target, um, it's a, you know, patients seeing well, doing well. I mean, you can do a telemedicine visit, the optometrist can, and, and even take a look, is the eye just white, right? Is the eye look white and quiet? Are they seeing well? Then I think they're good to go. I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I, I think that that would be great. Um, and then also help with uh, practice flow, both for yourself as well as for your co-managing doctor, whether that's in-house or in the community. You think it's a marketing tool? Do you think that patients are gonna, when you say that you only have to come to the office one time for your surgery, you don't, you don't even need to come back? I mean, is that, it's kind of interesting to think about if some doctors would use that as a, as a benefit for the patient. Because I mean, right now these patients, they don't want to get exposed, right? They don't right. want to go out of their house if they don't have to. So it's interesting the things that this has thrown us into. It, what about with, with uh, glaucoma? I know you said Nate, you're, you, know, you have other people checking the pressure. Um, I don't want to say you're blowing things off a little bit, but you're being more thoughtful about when they really need to come in and how often you're doing your testing and stuff and maybe skipping around here if it's not a high-risk patient or something you might do routinely just because it's been your pattern. I am. And uh, so, so the first thing, you know, I've always been a laser doctor. You know, I'm a big fan of SLT. And, um, you know, I just think, you know, we want all the sustained therapy I'm sort of all in on. And I've been practicing that way for a while. And when my office closed, it was because one of our doctors got COVID. And we, we didn't close partially. I mean, we, we shut down abruptly. I had some post-op day one patients out in the wind. And we mm. made some phone calls. Uh, but one of the things I was really happy for is I had done a lot of sustained cataract, you know, steroid application, you know, all, all, many of the different, uh, you know, available options. Um, that worked really well. I didn't have to worry about anyone getting their taper wrong or any of that communication with steroids. So I, I valued that kind of approach. Um, but but to back to your question more directly, risk stratification in glaucoma needs to be done a lot more. Uh, you know, and we have patients who don't need to come in that frequently, others who do, you know, and we need to be creative about how to get those patients in. Fortunately, with this age kind of works out in glaucoma, the older you are, the higher your COVID risk is, and probably the less frequently you need to be seen. Um, you know, younger people uh, with bad glaucoma are at a high risk of not just going blind, but living a long time blind. And those are the patients you probably want to see more aggressively and have in more. And so I'm, I've basically taken that trend that I've practiced my whole career and just, you know, it exaggerated it now. So, you know, in COVID, I'm frequently telling people, 
uh, with glaucoma on treatment that they can come back in a year. Um, you know, and, and I usually don't do that, but, but I'm definitely, uh, you know, playing with that because I, I'm not going to feel good if I drag someone into the office and, uh, and they catch, catch something. And, and I, by the way, I, I feel the same way about, uh, even just getting people off eye drops. And if I can laser someone now and get them off their drops so they don't have to go to the pharmacy and touch their eyes after they go to the pharmacy and get their drops, I think I'm doing something good. So you, you trying think, to think about it all, yeah. You think cataract surgeons in general might, might, this might, this might tip the boat for them to dabble in MIGs and start to get into MIGs and just it'd be one more reason to do it that they may not have to deal with the constant visit and the refills with the drops and making the patient go out and get the drops and all that. I mean, it, it's, it is amazing. You know, I'll, I'll do a cataract surgery with MIGs. Uh, we'll, we'll do some sort of sustained, you know, whether it's trimoxy, Dexacue, Dextenza, we'll do some sustained delivery. The antibiotic gets injected in the eye. They don't touch a drop, you know, for three months after their cataract surgery, they, you know, and, and they're the benefits of that. Uh, other than the patient's quality of life, you know, are um, just all these things. They aren't running to the pharmacy and they, they aren't touching their face. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's the, the more you have kind of gone down this rabbit hole, the more I've just found benefits all over for patients, doctors, for practices. Now your technicians aren't messed. Next time you're just in the office and you ask a patient about their drop, what do they do? They hand the medicine to you or they put it on your <laughs> counter they reach into their purse, they give it to someone. And, and then, you know, who knows what else they're giving you. So just this whole thing of getting the drops out of our office is gotta be good in the time of something that's spread by physical contact. Yeah, what, what do you think, Mitch, you, you're gonna- Yeah, so a um, couple things. I was already doing MIGs, you know, I'm not a big glaucoma practice, but since, since the COVID thing, I know my surgical coordinators have been having a little easier time convincing patients to jump into having MIGs done as long as they got the coverage for it, which they do, most of them do on the insurance side, or uh, eye stent or whatever, hydrist or Omni or whatever you do as a cataract surgeon. Um, one thing we actually just got trained on and we just learned on the billing side, we have a few patients lined up to you to do Durista now. I know that's more Nate's thing, but even as a you know, cataract refractive guy, we had some glaucoma patients, when they heard they can be off their drop, um, they were like excited, especially nowadays. So I know that's a whole new, another topic, but I mean, that's something we're dabbling in now and we're about to get going on that in the practice. Mitch, I can see that, that your staff's t-shirts, Jackson I, no more glasses, no more drops. <laughs> that'd be good to give marketing thing <laughs> audrey with um you're referring optometrists since patients are coming from far and some of these patients live far away um for some of the more complex cataract surgery because i know you do some really challenging cases as well um what was your perception like pre-covid letting optometrists co-manage with you, especially patients that live farther away and communicating with you about how some of these tougher cases were, you know, it's a either day one or two or four weeks out or anytime within the post-operative period versus coming back to you. And now with COVID, 
are you a little more lenient or open to having these uh, patients not come back to you, but be co-managed and have them communicate with you what's going on? I find that the community optometrists don't want to have anything to do with co-managing my complicated cataract cases. Um, they didn't beforehand, they don't now. They're just like, no, you know, um, just really happy to have me and my team see those patients, uh, at least until they're stabilized. And, you know, and the, the nice thing is now with things like the, you know, Yamani technique, these patients are doing really, really well. Usually like within about a week, they're seeing well and eyes are pretty quiet. So, so we can get them back, but, uh, you know, they, they don't, um, some of the crazy dense cataracts or yesterday I did one with a lens coloboma, um, mm. You know, they super dense cataract, you know, like patients on Flomax. I mean, there's just a little bit of everything going on. But the optometrists are happy not to see those patients in general, the community ODs, um, for, you know, until we stabilize them. My team, I work on, we have a team approach. And so the two optometrists who I work with, they'll see my one day post ops uh, while I'm in the operating room. Um, or, you know, we, we kind of share the post-op care first thing in the morning, kind of rapid fire, and they let me know if anything's amiss. Uh, and then they're very comfortable, and I'm comfortable with them since we work as a team seeing those patients at, you know, for the well, one week and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so they're, they're actually extremely well-trained uh, for that. So, so that's how we do the, the co-management. Yeah, I, and that team approach is great, and we continue to evolve that team where we have uh, a team leader and an optometrist that's, you know, responsible for biometry and talking to the patient preoperatively and doing the day one post-op. So that team approach has become important, but we also find it a little challenging because all of a sudden that optometrist, so to speak, is not seeing you know, normal routine patients that they're billing their insurance for. So the salary of that optometrist kind of gets wrapped into the, the, the service, so to speak. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you can also have those team members have regular clinics as well? So they have some income generation under their own name, or is it just kind of like the team approach and because you can be more efficient and see more patients and deliver better care it's more of a gestalt of practice growth and part of the cost of doing business. I'd say it's more of the latter. It's more of the team approach. They have, we don't do any routine care. We don't have any optical. Uh, and so any routine care is referred out to the community ODs. So we do no, no routine care. Uh, and so, you know, our, we'll see patients back for a follow-up of a conjunctivitis or a glaucoma check or a, you know, something like that. But it's really mostly the team approach. And basically they have certain milestones that we hit as a group. And so that's myself and my two ODs. And so they're incentivized, uh, we're incentivized actually as a group. And so above you know, certain amounts that the group brings in, and that has to do also with refractive um, our refractive cataract and refractive surgery, um, then they uh, get a bonus incentivized partially on that aside from a base salary. Uh, but we really do that on the team approach, realizing that they bring um, incredible value uh, to the practice uh, to streamline our, our visits. Yeah, it's interesting. There's definitely a trend 
you know, and I think it will continue of a different type of co-management where you're co-managing internally with people on your team and you're within your practice that when you get to the more challenging stuff and the stuff that you're specific in, subspecialists. I know we have a uh, optometrist that did a, a fellowship year in medical glaucoma. So Nate, she helps our glaucoma surgeon and takes care of some of the routine stuff and uh, it works really well. So whether it's external co-management or internal co-management, um, there's definitely a lot of room for that as the swelling population continues. Um, do you guys feel like kind of wrapping up here is, um, are things gonna get back to normal? Not just with co-management, but with um, normal practice life. Are you trending that way? Does your gut tell you that um, six months or 12 months from now, it's going to be like this didn't happen and everything's back to normal? Or do you have a different feeling on what where things are headed here over the back half of 20 and the first half of 21? Mitch? Well, for me, at least in the Midwest, our busiest quarter routinely uh, over the several years is my fourth quarter because winter comes and everybody goes to see Rob um, and everybody in Florida. Um, they kind of migrate, um, but, but I think a lot, I'll see how our fourth quarter is going to be. I really want to see if we don't have another shutdown or anything, you know, crazy. I think we've already peaked or whatever. I think we're going to be able to stay open and everything, but there's still some unknowns, but assuming we keep moving forward the way we are, things are ramping up for us in my practice. And I think the fourth quarter for us will really tell a lot because, when winter comes, I'm kind of quiet anyway for a couple months. And um, so I think I think it's going to be well into next year until we really know the answers. Um, you know, there's, there's an election, there's unknowns, there's no vaccine yet. There's a lot of things people are scared about still out there. Um, so it's kind of, it's a lot of unknowns still. But I think the fourth quarter, just internally with our practice in the Midwest, will kind of tell how things are really going to go. Well, at least for the next six months to a year. So you really, you're, you're, you're up in the air. Yeah. Sure. I'm kind of up in the air. I'm a little nervous going to my busy quarter. <laughs> fingers Nate, crossed. Fingers crossed. Nate, Nate's in the uh, so-called epicenter or one of them. Audrey <laughs> was as well. Um, are you ahead of the rest of the country? You got some insights for us? You got some <laughs> I do. I'll, I'll tell you here, we are clearly recovering and making linear positive progress. And I don't think we'll get out of masks, you know, for example, but the, the office volume is just growing. And I think because people waited their rational pandemic, you know, like you, you hear this every day, like everyone's patience is really thin these days, but <laughs> you know, patients are also, they already spent, they knew they could delay their visit three months, but they also knew they couldn't delay it six months. And we're now, you know, coming up on six months here. So people are coming back in because they already delayed it as much as they rationally could. And you realize at some point, glaucoma happens, cataracts happen. My cataract volume is recovering dramatically uh, now. Um, and so I, th I think that, you know, there's this guaranteed three months of doldrum, you know, of the p initial pandemic, whenever it hits your area, that some of my friends are just beginning or just getting into now, but it, it ends and, and things get better. Uh, the volume picks back up because it's real medicine that we're practicing. It's real value we're providing. And 
um, you know, people need us. And we're also getting really smart at how to do this efficiently and well. And it was painful to get there. Uh, but we are here now and we can do it and we're doing it. Love your optimism, brother. <laughs> <laughs> we're basically back up to pretty normal practice volumes right now. I mean, I saw, I don't know how many patients today, close to 50 patients, which is about what I was seeing, you know, uh, BCE, as I said, uh, and we're seeing about the same. Um, my surgical volumes, as I said, is really pretty much back to normal, maybe a little bit lighter on the cataracts, but cornea and refractive are, are back to normal. Uh, I see this as the new normal. I really do. I think that our practice volumes are going to get back to normal if they're not already. And I think that the social distancing, I think that whatever efficiencies you can build into your practice, what we were just discussing about your post-op visit consolidation uh, or you know, glaucoma visit consolidation, I think masks are here to stay. I mean, even if, you know, if there's even like hopefully a, a change in regime and there's um, also you know, a vaccine, right? Say we get a vaccine first or second quarter of 21. The virus is here to stay, right? Not everybody's gonna get the vaccine or the vaccine isn't gonna be 100%. And while people, the vaccine is being rolled out, you're still gonna have patients coming into your practice who are COVID positive that you don't know that they are. You have immunocompromised patients and immunocompromised staff for that matter. Um, who are, you know, maybe they couldn't get the vaccine or, or, or likely to get COVID. And so you're still going to have those risks, right? You're still going to have to mitigate those risks of COVID in your practice from a patient who's immunocompromised or elderly or whatever getting the virus. Um, and you don't want to be that person, right? You don't want to be that practice that uh, transmits the virus. So you're going to have to maintain all of the additional cleaning that we're doing, our masking, our slit lamp barriers. Uh, you know, the, potentially the screening of patients. And I think that's here to stay for the foreseeable yeah. future. And we should just get used to it and say, okay, this is what it looks like. You know, how can we best manage? What can we do to increase our efficiencies? We're um, going to be building, a, we're in the process sort of, a, we were supposed to be starting to, to work on our new building financially. We put that on pause for a few months as we sort things out a little bit. But that's going forward anyway next year. And now we're talking about, okay, the HVAC with the UV filters, okay, and, and uh, waiting areas that, um, and testing areas that allow for more social distancing, especially in our testing areas, and how to be able to, to do that to streamline the office visit. So I, I think it's, you know, it's here to stay, but I think we'll just have to do workarounds and, and learn how to live with it. Rob, we're kind of in the same thing as Audrey. We we were in the process about to break ground on a new building, and it's kind of good everything's been put on hold because uh, we're going to be starting next year like Audrey is, and we're going to be implementing a lot of new uh, things with the HVAC system and create a whole different spacing, and it's kind of good because we're kind of re, re, re redesigning the new office based on everything for the start of next year. So that's been a good thing for us. I think we're going to see more and more different designs and different ways of structuring flow in the spaces that we use will be different and the use of telemedicine and things like that. And electronic health records is going to become more streamlined hopefully and patients will be filling in half their stuff that's on the same portal at home and all that's going to become mandatory. 
for throughput in, in today's world. Well, Audrey, that was a very practical outlook on things. I couldn't agree more. I think what's reassuring is that all of us, by implementing PPE and taking good old-fashioned precautionary measures about cleaning the rooms and the slit lamps and the chairs and you know using hand sanitizer before and after every patient, mm -hmm. wearing the masks and having the patients wear the mask and screening them at the door, most of our colleagues are well into successful practice right now. Maybe a few have had some outbreaks, but good decision-making, simple, you know, things. I mean, it's just a virus, right? You know, I mean, it's a bad virus that it has the potential to do bad harm. But, you know, we've been living with viruses for thousands, if not millions of years, and it's well proven what prevents the spread. But I think we can all rest assured that we could have some waxy and waning of things in our communities. But, you know, what we do is necessary and patients need our help. And, you know, they're going to come see us when they need help. So we're going to be there for them. Uh, you guys have been awesome, really transparent and honest and fun as always. So thanks for participating tonight. I hope everybody has a great rest of the week. Hope everybody enjoyed the uh, discourse tonight. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbbVie company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to reliance on in this webcast podcast.